it's really a pleasure for me to have Liv Barre uh, as our Ground Truth guest today. I met her at the uh, TED meeting in October dedicated to AI. I think she's one of the most interesting people I've met in years. And the first time I've ever interviewed uh, a professional poker player who's won world championships. And we're going to go through that whole story. So welcome, Liv. Thanks for having me, Eric. Well, you know, you have an amazing background having been uh, at University of Manchester in physics and astrophysics. And somehow back around 2005, you landed into the poker world. Um, maybe you could help uh, us understand how you go from physics to poker. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a strange story. I graduated, as you said, 2005, and I had student debt and needed to get a job. I had plans to continue on in academia. I wanted to do a master's and then a PhD uh, to become, well, to get a, to work in astrophysics in some way. Uh, but I needed to make some money. So I started applying for TV game shows. And it was on one of these game shows that I first learned how to play poker. They, um, they were looking for beginners. The loose premise of the show was, which personality type is best suited for learning the game. And even though I didn't win that particular show, we were playing for a winner-take-all prize of £100,000, which was a life-changing amount of money had I won it at the time. Uh, I, it was like a light bulb moment. Just the game, I've, I've always been a very competitive person, but poker in particular really spoke to my to my soul. I always wanted to play in games that where it was often considered a boys game and I, I could be a girl beating the boys at their own game. Uh, and I hadn't played that much cards in particular, but I just loved any game that was very cutthroat, which poker certainly is. So from that point onwards, I was like, you know what, I'm going to put poker on hold for a second. Uh, sorry, physics on hold and see if I can make it uh, in this in this poker world instead. And uh, then never really look back. Well, you sure made it in that world. Uh, I know you retired back in about 2019, but that was after you won all sorts of world and European championships and beat a lot of men. Uh, <laughs> so what what were the, in the, in the poker per se, because we're going to get into the lessons of life that you've derived from it, what were some of the things that, that you, um, that made you such a phenomenal player? Um, so the main, the main thing with poker is, well, the most important ingredient, if you really want to make it as a professional is you have to be extremely competitive. You can't, I, I've not met any top pros who don't have that degree of killer instinct when it comes to the game. That doesn't mean it means you're competitive in everything else in life, but it, you have to have a passion for looking someone in the eye uh, mentally modeling them, thinking how to outwit them and put them into difficult situations within the game and then take pleasure in that. So there's, there's a certain personality type. It tends to, uh, it tends to enjoy, enjoy that. The other key facet is you have to be comfortable with thinking in terms of probability. It's the, the cards are shuffled between every hand so there's this inherent degree of randomness uh, on the scale of pure roulette, which is all luck, no skill, to a game like chess, which has almost no luck, uh, close to 100% skill as you can get. 
poker lies somewhere in the middle. And of course, the more you play, the bigger the skill edge and the smaller the luck factor. So that's why professionals can exist. It's it's a game of both luck and skill, which I, I think is what makes it so interesting because that's what life is really, right? We, we're trying to get our business off the ground. We're trying to compete in the dating market, whatever it is we're doing. Yes, our strategy, yes, the role of luck, life can throw you curveballs that you can do everything right and still things don't go the way you intended them to or vice versa. But there's also strategies we can employ to improve our chances of success. So those are the sort of skills um, that poker players, particularly this idea of grayscale probabilistic thinking that you really have to hone. And I, I wonder, I've always wondered whether having a background in science or at least you know, studying, having a, a, a scientific degree helped in that regard because, of course, the scientific method is about understanding uh, variables and minimizing uncertainty as much as possible, un- understanding what co-founding factors can, can bias the outcome of your, of your results. And again, that's, that's always going on in a poker player's mind. You'll have a sort of, you'll have concurrent hypotheses. Oh, this guy just made a huge bet into me when that ace came out. Is it because he actually has an ace or is it because he's pretending to have an ace? And so you've, you've got to weigh all the bits of information up uh, as as unbiased as possible, in an unbiased way as possible, to come to a concre- correct conclusion. Uh, but even then, you can never be certain. So this idea of understanding biases, understanding probabilities, that's, I think, a lot of where the science... That's why a lot of, uh, a lot of top poker players have backgrounds in scientific degrees. Um, a very good friend of mine, he had a PhD in, in physics, uh, it, it tends to, and especially over time, poker has become a much more sort of scientific pursuit. It was when I first learned to play it, it was very much a game of street smarts and intuition, in part because we didn't have the uh, technological tools to understand really the mechanics of the game as well. We didn't have, a, you couldn't record all your playing data. If you were playing just in a casino, unless you were writing down your hands, it, otherwise this information wasn't getting stored anywhere. But then online poker came along, which meant that you could store all this data on your on your laptop and then build tools to analyze that data and so the game became a much more technical scientific pursuit well that actually gets to kind of the human side of poker not the online version whereby especially since we're going to be mainly talking about ai uh the term poker face uh, ability to bluff is, is that a big part of this oh absolutely um you can't be a good poker player if you don't ever bluff because if your opponents will st- start to notice that so that means you're only ever putting your money on the line when you have a good hand so why would they ever pay you off the point of poker is to maximize the deception to your opponents so you have to use strategies where some some of the time you might be having a strong hand and some of the time you might be bluffing. You might have a weak hand. And the key is, I mean, this is getting into the technical sort of game theory side of it, but you want to have, you want to be doing these bluffs versus what we call value bets, as in betting with, with a good hand, with the right sort of frequency. You need these right ratios between them. Uh, so bluffing is a very core part of the game. Uh, and... Yes, having a poker face obviously helps, 
because you want to be as inscrutable to your opponents as possible. But at the same time, online poker is an enormously popular game, variant of the game, where you can't see your opponent's faces. And yet you can still bluff, uh, which could actually lead us into this t- topic of AI because um, now the best human, in the, sorry, the best players in the world are actually AIs. Well, it's interesting because, <laughs> yeah, it takes out that human component of being able to bluff and it's still, uh, and it may be good for people who don't have a poker face, you know, that they can play online poker and, and be good at it because they don't have that uh, disguise, if you will. But right. you know, that, that gets me to um, game theory uh, and uh, a big part of the talk you gave at the TED conference about something that uh, I think a lot of the folks listening uh, aren't familiar with, Moloch traps. So mm-hmm. could you, could you uh, kind of enlighten us about that? Because what the talk, which of course we'll link to, uh, is so uh, illuminating and and so apropos to the AI landscape that we face today. Yeah. Um, so really what, well, I'll, I'll leave it for people to go and watch the TED Talk because that's going to be much more succinct than me to explain the backstory of how it came to be called a Moloch trap uh, because Moloch is a sort of biblical figure, uh, a, a demon, and it seems strange that you would be applying such a concept to what's basically just a a collection of game theoretic incentives. But essentially what a Moloch trap is, is, well, the the more formal name for it is a multipolar trap, uh, which some of the listeners may be familiar with. But essentially a a Moloch trap or a a multipolar trap is one of those situations where you have a lot of competing different people all competing for one particular thing, let's say, who can collect the most fish out of a lake. And the trap occurs when everyone is incentivized to get as much of that thing as possible. So to to go for a specific objective, but if everyone ends up doing it, then the overall environment ends up being worse off than before. So what we're seeing with with plastic pollution. It's not like packaging companies want to fill the oceans with plastic. They don't want to be, they don't want this outcome. It doesn't make them look good, but they're all caught in a in this on the trap of needing to minimize, you know, maximize profits. And external and, and the West one of the most efficient ways of doing that is to externalize costs outside of their PL by using cheap packaging that perhaps ends up in, in the, in the lakes or the oceans. And if everyone ends up doing this, but well, basically you're a CEO in a decision of, I could do the more expensive selfless action, but if I don't do that, then my, I know that my competitors are going to do the selfish thing. So I might as well do it anyway, because the world's going to end up in roughly the same outcome as if, uh, if, whether I do it or not. And because everyone ends up adopting this mindset, they, they end up being trapped in this bad situation. Another way of thinking of it is, um, you know, if you're at a, you're watching a football, you're at a stadium watching a football match or um, a concert. And before the show starts, everyone's sitting down. But then a few people near the front want to get a better view. So they stand up. Well, that now 
forces the people right behind them to make a decision. Well, I don't really want to block the people behind me, but I can't see anymore. So now I have to stand up and I have to stand up. And so the whole thing sort of falls down until everyone is now stuck standing for the rest of the show. No one really actually has an, a comparative advantage anymore. No one's got a particularly better view than before because it's just the same and now everyone's standing. But overall, everyone is net worse because now they have to stand for the whole thing. And there's no easy way for everyone to coordinate. So really a Moloch trap is the result of a competitive landscape where the individual short-term incentives push people to take actions that from a God's eye view, from the whole, from the whole system's perspective, makes everyone worse off than before. And because of, there are so many people, it's too hard for everyone to coordinate and really go back to the state before. So it creates these kind of arms race dynamics, these tragedy, tragedy of the commons. These are all a result of these Moloch traps, which is essentially just another name for bad short-term incentives that hurt the whole. Uh, overall. No, that's great. You know, someday you should write the book on competition because you have a deep understanding of that. But let's go. To, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, um, you know, of course, uh, understand the whole range from healthy, sometimes what we call managed competition to kind of bring out the, the best in people to unhealthy, I, I might even call reckless, as I mentioned when we were together, competition. So now let's go to, of course, um, you know, as you say, arms race, nuclear. There's so many examples of this. Mm. But um, in the AI world, what you, you were polite during your talk because you referred to one of the major CEOs without actual uh, mentioning uh, his name about making another one of the large um, AI companies, Titans, uh, make them dance uh, as part of the competition. And I think you of course, came on to something very important, which is we're interested in the safety of AI. This is a big, uh, as we move towards what seems to be inevitable, if you will, artificial general intelligence, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Uh, there's certainly concerns, uh, at least by a, a significant, uh, perhaps plurality of people, uh, that this is dangerous, it can be dangerous. And uh, the fact that um, these this arms race, if you will, of AI uh, is ongoing. So, what what are your thoughts about that? Uh, how how seriously bad is this competition? So, if it were the case that building powerful AI systems that it was trivially easy to align them with the best of humanity and minimize accidents, then we would want more competition because more competition would encourage everyone to go faster and faster. And we would want to get to that point as fast as possible. However, if we are in the world where it is not trivially easily easy to align powerful AI systems with what we want and, and make sure that they could not uh, do reward hacking or create some kind of unintended consequence or fall into the wrong hands easily, you know, into the hands of people who are, uh, want to use it for nefarious purposes, then we wouldn't want as much competition as possible because that would make everything go faster. And the, the thing is, is when, if, if, you're, if your trajectory is pointing in the wrong direction, the last thing you want is more speed, Right. And I have not yet seen a compelling argument that 
the current trajectory is sufficiently aligned with what is good for humanity and certainly not for the biosphere that we rely upon. And this is not just with AI. I mean, it's the wider sort of techno-capital system. In many ways, obviously, capitalism has been wonderful for us. Uh, We are living here, speaking across the airwaves in a warm, comfortable environment. We have good food. uh, And God bless capitalism for providing us all with that. But at the same time, there are clearly externalities that are piling up in our biosphere, whether it's through climate change, whether it's through pollution and so on and so forth. And one particular thing about AI is that if we're going to hack the process of intelligence itself, it means we are going to, intelligence is by definition ubiquitous, right? It, it can be used to increase the process. It can, it, it can be used to make more of whatever you want to do. You can do it more efficiently, faster, um, more effectively. So again, if you think the system is aligned with exactly what we want, then that's a good thing. But I see lots of evidence of the ways it is not sufficiently aligned. And I'm very concerned that we are going, if we're not thinking in more depth about how, which goals we should be optimizing for in the first place, then we're going to just keep blindly going forward, forward, forward as fast as possible and create a bunch of unintended consequences, or even in some cases, intended ones with, as I said, it falling into the wrong hands of people. So, <clears throat> sorry, can you just remind me of your question specifically? Because No, you're, you're right on it. I think the issue is um, how to get the right balance of right. Pro- progress versus uh, guardrail. Yeah, no, so exactly. And, and so the... You mentioned this particular CEO that I quoted in the TED Talk. Again, I won't mention him by name, but anyone can go Google. He he basically said, I want people to know we made our competitor dance. And the reason why that resonated with me so much is because it reminded me of my old self in my early 20s when I first learned to play poker. And as I said, you need this to, to win at poker, which is by definition a zero-sum game. You need this cutthroat almost bordering on psychopathic type willingness to like go after your opponents and get them by the throat, metaphorically speaking, to get their money, right? And that mindset can be very useful when you're playing a, a game where the, where the boundaries are clearly defined, everyone is opting in, uh, and there's minimal externalities and harms to the wider world. But if you're using that same mindset to build something as powerful as artificial general intelligence which we don't know whether that's, no one's certain whether it's going to be trivially easy, whether it's impossible, whether it will be controllable, whether it'll be completely uncontrollable, whether we're making a new species, whether it's just another tool or technology, no one really knows. But what I do know is that that is not the mindset or the impetus we want of the leaders building such incredibly powerful tools, tools that couldn't be used to make them more powerful than any human ever in history, tools that they may even lose control of themselves. We don't know. And so that's really what alarms me the most is that, first of all, we might have leaders who have that mindset in the first place. But again, even if they were all very wise and positive, some mindset, they they weren't out there trying to just compete against each other in this like, pardon my French, but like dick swinging contest. Even if they were perfectly enlightened, 
they're still trapped in this difficult game theoretic dilemma, this Moloch trap of, well, I don't, I, I want to let my team build this safely as, as a priority, but I know that the other guys might not do it as safely. So if I go too slowly, they're going to get there ahead of me and deploy their really powerful systems first. So I have to go faster myself. So again, what suffers if everyone's trying to go as fast as possible? The slow, boring stuff like safety checks, like evaluations, yeah. testing, et cetera. And so this is the real, the fundamental nature of the problem that we need to be having more honest conversations about. It's twofold. It's the mindset of the people building it. Now, again, some of them, I know some of them personally, they're amazing people. Uh, some of these CEOs I, I deeply respect, and I think they understand the nature of the problem, and they're really trying to do their best to not fall into this Moloch mindset. But there are others who truly are uh, just wanting to, I don't know, solve some childhood trauma thing that they have through whatever they're building. I don't, I don't want to psychoanalyze them too much, but whatever's going on there. Plus, you have the game theoretic dilemma itself, and we need to be tackling both of these. Because if we're building something as powerful, um, whether, again, whether it's a AGI or not, even narrow AI systems, these things, LLMs are getting increasingly generalizable, uh, multimodal, uh, they're, they're starting to encroach into your, your area of expertise, into, into biology. Uh, I was reading about, uh, which, I can't remember which chatbot it was, but there was a um, there's a, there's a really cool paper you guys could link to uh, on, on Archive talking about whether LLMs could be used to democratize access to uh, dual-use technology like DNA synthesis. Mm -hmm. Is that, again, is that something we want no safeguards on? Because that's sort of what we're careening towards. And there are people actively pushing to be like, no, that's you can't deny anyone access to information. It's like, well, okay, Google right now, if you search, if you Google, how do I build a bomb? There's... It's not like they just put it on front page, that, that information. They don't give you the step-by-step -step recipe. And yes, okay, you could go and get your chemistry degree and get some books and figure out how to build a bomb. But the point is there's a high barrier to entry. And as these LLMs become more generalizable and more and more accessible, we have this problem where the barrier to entry for anyone who is really murderous or omnicidal or terrorist mindset, whatever, these are going to be falling into the hands of more and more of these people with easy, easier, it's going to become easier and easier for them to actually get hold of this information. And there is no clear answer of what to do with this because then we, you don't want to, how do we strike a balance between allowing free flow of information so that we're not stifling innovation, which it also would be very terrible or even worse, creating some kind of centrally controllable, centrally controlled top-down uh, tyrannical control of the internet saying who can read what that that's an awful outcome but then in the other direction we can't have it widely available to the people like isis or whoever how to build a pathogen that makes covid look like the common cold right so how do we navigate this terrain where we don't end up in in, in tyranny or self-terminating chaos I don't know, but that, those are the problems. That's what we have to figure out. Well, you know, the, the idea that you conceptualize what's going on in AI uh, as a Moloch trap, I think is exceedingly important. But now um, you also cited that there were a few companies that deserved at least credit with, with their words, such as um, 
OpenAI, where they're putting 20% of their resources towards alignment uh, mm -hmm. and Anthropic, uh, as well as DeepMind that's done a lot of great work with AlphaFold 2 and life science. But as you said, these are just words. We haven't seen that actually translated into action. And so as we go forward, one of the terms that's tossed around a lot that also was uh, surrounding Sam Altman's uh, temporary dismissal and brought back to OpenAI is effective altruism. Mm -hmm. what, what is that? What is EA? So there's two ways of thinking about EA. There's the body of ideas, the principles, uh, which to summarize them as quickly as I can uh, and as best as I understand them would be there are many different problems on earth. There are only finite resources in terms of intellectual capital and actual capital in order to be spent on fixing these problems. And so because of that, we need to triage and figure out where where is the most effective place to spend our time and money in order to solve these problems. You know, what, how do we rank these problems in terms of scale and electedness and so on? And then how do we deploy our resources as efficiently and as effectively as possible in order to achieve these big problems? So those are the sort of principles. And then out of those principles, over time sprang up a community of people who uh, adhere to those principles. And I, in part, have been very aligned with that. I, I started a, a fundraising organization alongside some other poker players back in 2014, uh, following these principles and donating, encouraging poker players basically to, do, to donate to a range of different charities, uh, most of which were to do with, because it, if you want to save a life, on average, the most cost-effective way to do that uh, averages out to uh, people in sub-Saharan Africa dying from extreme poverty-related illnesses, uh, particularly malaria. Turns out that providing bed nets on average will save a life for about $5,000 um, uh, from malaria. Uh, there's vitamin A supplementation, et cetera. So that was my involvement. Um, I'm going off track. That, that was my involvement in EA. Uh, but, but basically, it's, it's a, you've got the ideas, and then out of that sprung a movement. And as that movement evolved, then it became there were sort of different categories because it's very hard to concretely go, okay, well, that's definitely problem number one, because you have some which are, well, right now, we know that there are this many people dying per day needlessly from this particular tropical disease. Or you could zoom out and go, okay, but over the next 30 years, these are the kind of risks that civilization is facing. So actually, if we give that a 10% probability, then that could be 10% of this many people. So actually, this is the most, uh, the, the biggest, the biggest issue. Or you could go, you know what, I, I care more about, I don't just care about human lives, I care about animal lives. In which case, then you, the math would lead you to conclude that factory farming is actually the biggest issue, particularly the amount of needless suffering that is going on on factory farms. Like there's small rules, small, small rule changes that could be made in the way that these animals are treated during slaughter or uh, raised pigs in gestation crates. Small changes there could have a huge impact, positive impact on billions upon billions of animals' lives per year. So out of these ideas sprung sort of different subcategories of EA of people uh, focusing on different areas depending on what their personal uh, calculations may led them to. 
Uh, and of the category of sort of risks to humanity, AI, uh, if you follow the, if, if you sort of un- appreciate the, the, the game theoretic dilemmas that are going on and, and see just how fast things are going and how much safety is falling by the wayside, there's strong arguments that AI becomes a very important topic. So uh, effective altruists became, from what I can see, very concerned about AI long, be- in fact, long before almost the rest of the world did. Uh, and so they became, I guess, kind of synonymous with the idea of AI safety measures. And then I don't really understand why. I mean, there's, there's reasons why, I guess. There, it seems like the way the, the, the Sam Altman thing came up was because the board, two members of the board have been associated with AI safety and effective altruism. And they were two of the three that seems like they tried to, you know, vote him out. So then this whole hoo-ha drama came up about it. And I wish I knew more. I I would love to know their reasons why they felt like Sam had to go. Uh, What it seems like, again, I'm purely speculating here, but there's what I've heard through the grapevine was that it was more to do with him lying and misrepresenting them as opposed to a safety concern. So, but I don't know. So that's the, I guess, Sam Altman EA drama. As best well, I can. But, you know, in many ways, it's emblematic of what we've been talking about, because, you know, there were for sure there were a couple of board members that were uh, there was a lot of angst regarding uh, pushing hard on AGI. Right. Whether or not there are other things, of course, that's a different story. But this is the tension we live in now. Yeah. Uh, that is, we have on one hand, some leaders like Jan LeCun. Andrew uh, Ng, who are not afraid, who say, you know, still humans are going to be calling the shots as this gets more and more refined uh, to whatever you want to call AGI, but more comprehensive abilities for machines to do things. And then on the other, the real concerns like Jeff Hinton and so many others have voiced, which is, hey, you know, we may not be able to control this. So we'll see how this plays out over time. Yeah. Hey, look, I hope that Andrew Ng and Jan LeCun turn out to be right. I deeply hope so, but I have yet to see them make compelling arguments. Why? Because really the, the, the precautionary principle should apply here, right? When we're, when we're playing such high stakes, when we're gambling so high, and there's a lot of people who don't have any skin in the game whose lives are on the line, even if it's with a very small probability, then you need to have real airtight proof that your systems will do exactly what you want them to. And even with chat, GPT-4, when it came out, not, you know, obviously that wasn't a threat to humanity in, in any explicit way, but that went through six months of testing before they released it. Six months, and they got lots of different people. They put a lot of effort into testing it to make sure that it reliably did what they wanted it to when users used it. Within three days of it being available on the internet, there were all kinds of unintended consequences coming up. You know, I mean, uh, we made the front page of the New York Times with this Sydney character, et cetera. So even with six months of testing, I believe, you know, OpenAI really worked hard to make that be as, as, as boundaried as possible. And they thought they'd, I'm sure they were expecting some things to slip through, but it was trivial once you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of users on it, figuring out ways to jailbreak it for that, for that to happen. So... 
there hasn't been that, that, that that's surely a data point to show that you know even with lots of testing this is not a trivially easy problem to the that human the people building the machine will building some kind of system will always be able to control it and as these systems get more and more powerful and more and more emerging properties come out of them as they increase in complexity as that's what emergence seems to do it, it's it, if anything it's going to become harder to predict everything that they could do not easier and it's yeah i don't know I, I i as i say i would love for yan and andrew to be correct but even um i think even both of them when pushed for example on the topic of okay what about controlling access to llms that could be used for pathogen synthesis in some way uh, or as a sort of per, as as a, as a tool to help you figure out which dna synthesis companies have the least stringent checks on 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 their on their products and we'll just send you anything because the, the, some really do have very low low stringency there right they didn't have a good answer to that they couldn't answer it and they'll just sort of go back to yes but you can't constrain information it's you, you have to give it all for free it's like you can't be an absolutist here like there are trade-offs yes and we have to be very careful as a civilization not to swing too much into censorship or to swing too much into just like letting all guardrails off we have to navigate this but I, it is not comforting to me as a, as a semi-lay person to see leaders who are building these technologies dismiss the, 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 the concerns of alignment and unintended consequences as like trivially easy problems when they clearly aren't. That's not filling me with confidence. Um, they're, they're hubris. I don't want a leader who is showing hubris. And so that's that, that. I guess yeah. That's the end of my rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a rant. It's really healthy to to kind of vet the the ideas here, and that's what's so unique about you, Liv, is that you have this poker probability probabilistic thinking. You know, competition as fierce as it can be, uh, and how how we are in such exciting times, but also in, in many ways daunting with respect to, you know, where we're headed, where this yeah. could lead to. And I think it, it's great. I also want to make a plug for your win-win. That's a perfect name for a podcast that you do. Um, and continue to be very interested in your ideas as we go forward, because you do have such a unique perspective. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you uh, plugging it. Um, yeah, I... I, I remain optimistic. You know, there's a lot of well-intended people, incredibly brilliant people working within the AI industry who do appreciate the nature of the problem. Uh, the question is, can... I, I don't... I wish it was as simple as, oh, just let the market decide. Just let profit maximization guide everything and that will always result in the best outcome. I wish it was that simple. That would make the life much easier. But that's not the case. Externalities are real. Um, misalignment of vision, of goals is, is real. Um, and we need people to reflect on, just be honest over the fact that not always, not, not everything has to be built. It, 
move fast and break things is not the solution to every problem. And especially when you're the possible things you are breaking are the, is, is the very biosphere or playing field that we all rely on and live on. So, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting times. Well, we didn't solve it, but we sure heard uh, a very refreshing, <laughs> uh, insightful perspective. So Liv, thanks for what you're doing to, um, you know, get us informed, to get us, you know, to, uh, learn from other examples outside of the space of AI uh, and your background and uh, look forward to further discussions in the future. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me on.